Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Well, with all the craziness going on in the world setting up for the end times, it's good to be able to go into the book of Revelation and look at our future when we look at heaven. Heaven is that promise that God has given us for those who accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and He wants to spell it out in detail what that time period, what that experience will be like, and we're going to explore that today. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation 21. And we're going to look at 1 through 8. And I'm kind of taking my time through this because there's a lot of details in this that need to be unpacked. Because a lot of people just skim over this and they really never flush out what all heaven is like in the New Jerusalem. And unfortunately, what that causes in a lot of believers is to have a misunderstanding about heaven. They don't think accurately about heaven or about the New Jerusalem, and actually, if you don't think correctly about heaven, you actually, by default, will become worldly. And so it's extremely important to know all the details of heaven, to keep our minds there. And unfortunately, because people don't know a lot about it, they think it's kind of like Gary Larson's Far Side cartoon, where a guy is laying on a cloud, strumming a harp, saying, I wish I brought a book. Because he's bored and doesn't know what he's going to do in heaven. And a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of Christians think that's lying on a cloud, hanging out in the sky all day long, and in this relentlessly dull meeting, and it's a long church service, and they're in a disembodied existence. And all those factors just really don't grasp us. I mean, because they're not real, it's a counterfeit. And so people's conceptions of heaven really, really hurt them and, and do not create an appetite for the next life, for the, the next world that we're getting ready to go into. Imagine this before we get into this. Imagine that your greatest memories of your life, your most fondest memories, the nostalgia you have, the greatest places you've ever been, whether that was on a, in, a, in a, a desert night sky or a beach or mountains or a very tropical paradise, or the cold beauty of Alaska. Just imagine these beautiful pictures in your mind and those, those nostalgic scenes that you can go back to when you were a child of your friends and the family members that were there and the sights and the smells and all that that you can remember that was good in your life. Imagine that being given back to you. What a lot of people don't understand is is heaven is really Eden restored. It's paradise restored. And it's a very tangible place. It's going to be on a new earth. There's going to be a new universe. And heaven actually comes and merges with the new earth. And so we're not going to be in this ethereal state strumming on a cloud away from planet earth. A new earth gets created and we come back to it. And it's very tangible. And so a lot of times in your life, those little glimpses of things that you can remember, maybe nostalgic, or those scenes in your life where it was just picture perfect, those are little glimpses of what the new world will be like that God creates. He's not going to create a different environment that you're not used to. He's actually creating an environment for you and I that is physical, that we relate to, that we understand. 
And so you will see in the text a familiarity with heaven that he creates for us. And so um, keep thinking in those nostalgic terms because those are the little things that he will give you back in your life. Let's start off with uh, verse 1. We unpacked verse 1 last week, so I'm not going to go over it too much. We can, you can hear last week's message. But he says this in verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. I'm not going to spend any time on that because we, we did that last sermon. You can, you can listen to that online. But the idea is it's a resurrection of the cosmos. He destroys it, and then from, from what he destroys, he takes and recreates a new heaven and a new universe. And so we talked a little bit about that last week. Okay, so now we move into what we want to study this week, the new Jerusalem. This is the place that he has created for you and I, and it will be a place that we will always inhabit. This is our home. And so let's unpack that a little bit. In verse 2, it starts this way. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem's in the land of Israel, but this is new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God. So New Jerusalem has been created by the Messiah once he left the earth. He went to prepare a place for us and he went to go create this new place. And it's in heaven and it's designed to meet the needs of all the saints of the past, present, and future. And what you want to think about this New Jerusalem Where it's located right now, in the third heaven, the abode where God is at, it's a temporary place because it eventually moves, as you can see in the text, it moves from heaven to the new earth. So if we were to die today or we get raptured today, we will go to the new Jerusalem in the third abode where God is, but we won't stay there. We will actually come back with Jesus at the second coming. We will rule and reign on a renovated earth throughout the millennium, and we will have access back and forth to this place. But then once the millennium is over, a new earth and a new cosmos is created, and new Jerusalem comes and actually comes to the new planet, planet earth, the new planet, 2.0, so to speak. And so... Where we go, we don't stay there. It's a temporary place. We actually come back as New Jerusalem comes to earth. And so what you have to think about in heaven is heaven is very dynamic. It's not static. It's changing. It changes locations, as we see in Scripture. The New Jerusalem didn't exist in the Old Testament. It only existed when Jesus went back into heaven at the ascension. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. That's the place he went to prepare. It didn't exist before then. So heaven is very dynamic. It changes. There is a sense of time in heaven. And, and you see this in Revelation where, the mar- uh, where they sense a half hour has went by in heaven. Or the martyrs say, how long, O sovereign Lord, until you avenge us? So there's an element of time in the new Jerusalem. Again, Only God is timeless. Only God is unchanging. Only God is eternal. Heaven was created. Therefore, it has an element of time in it. It has dimensions of space, time, and reality because it's created for you and I. It's not created for God. God didn't need heaven. 
Before that, the Trinity existed without any of creation. You have to keep that in mind. Heaven was created for us, for us to, to function in for all eternity. And, and so with that is heaven had a beginning. Heaven has a present time right now. The people who are, are with the Lord right now are, are currently enjoying New Jerusalem, seeing Jesus, uh, seeing the triune God. But heaven has a future, and it, it, it will change locations. And so we, we have to really kind of get our, our minds wrapped around that a little bit. If you continue on in the text, we go back to the text, and it says she was prepared, the new Jerusalem, as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, John employs, through the, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, marriage language. And there's a reason behind that. I will say this. Jesus uses marriage language all the time in reference to his coming. When he says, I go to prepare a place for you, that's what a groom would say to his bride. And so he uses a lot of marriage language. Why? Because it is the most intimate in the Hebraic language to use marriage language. And it symbolizes the intimacy and the tenderness and joyous occasion as a marriage. And that's what John's trying to get us to understand. Okay, so explain this a little bit. If you flush this out, he's saying that this place is is like a bride. Well, how so? A couple things I want to point out to you about the place. Number one, if you look at a wedding, the bride is the main focus of the wedding. So, this place in heaven is the main focus of eternity, this place. I mean, this is second to God. You have to understand that. God is the main focus, but this place that he's prepared for us It is the main issue. It's the main location for us. Just like a bride is the main object in a wedding. It too, the bride is beautiful. Well, the new Jerusalem is beautiful. You'll see it. It is a mineral garden. It is a mineral paradise. And we'll flush it out in the weeks to come about what this mineral paradise looks like. It's absolutely breathtaking. The bride is pure. New Jerusalem is pure as well. What that means is... She does not allow any defilement. There is no evil. There's no wickedness that can come in there. Now, you have to understand that is referring to the New Jerusalem. But the third abode where God is, evil still can go there. Because guess what? Satan and demons can have audiences with God. So you see this in Job. You see this as in, in Revelation, where Satan is portrayed as the accuser of the brethren. And where is he at accusing us? In heaven, in the third abode with God. But apparently, because the new Jerusalem is pure, he's not allowed to go into that. But he can go to the other abode, other parts of the abode in heaven where God is. There's a tabernacle uh, that Moses patterned off of in heaven. And there's the mountain and whatnot. Heaven is very spacious, very dynamic. And Satan can have access into heaven, but he cannot have access into the new Jerusalem because nothing evil or defiling can go into it. Heaven was originally defiled by Satan, if you recall. When he rebelled against God, he defiled heaven. If you read Hebrews chapter 9, this is why the blood of Christ had to be taken into heaven to purify the things of heaven because of what Satan then did. You can read that in Hebrews chapter 9. 
Four, a bride makes herself ready for marriage. Jesus has made it beautiful us, for us and prepared for us. And, and you know the, the famous scripture in John chapter 14. And it says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive to myself that where I am, you may be also. That's a very famous passage in John 14. You know it very well. But that's what he was referring to, the new Jerusalem. Now, when you see this passage, what you have to interpret it as, I go to prepare a place for you specifically. Okay. This is where your heart gets touched, and you have to see it. It's in the language. He is saying to you individually, you sitting there in the seat, I'm preparing this place, and when you get there, it will have an air of familiarity to you because I'm making it for you, not for me, but for you. Specifically for you. So that everybody, every believer that goes there, the minute they get there, their special place, their dwelling place in the New Jerusalem is specifically made for them. Their likes, what they experienced in life, what they always wanted, is there. And of course, Such a God would do that, wouldn't he? He loves us so much, he cares for us so much, that he doesn't create an environment that's foreign to us. He creates an environment specifically for you individually. So when you get your place in the new Jerusalem, the minute you walk in, you're going to say, Jesus, this is perfect. This is exactly the way I would have arranged it. Now, you'll have the other trappings of the New Jerusalem and things, but again, I'm focusing in on your particular spot in the New Jerusalem. And again, like I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, you have to go back in your mind and understand what are your favorite things in life? What brings you back? When you were a kid, do you remember how it was when, when, when you didn't know a lot of what's going on in the world? The older we get, the more crummy the world seems to be getting. That's the more we know. When we were kids, we, didn't, we were ignorant. We went to our family and friends and we played and we had a good time. We didn't have all these responsibilities that we have that drag us down and kill us nearly. Do you remember how it was like when you were a kid? Do you remember your buddies? you remember when you were a kid and everything was all right with the world? You didn't understand how you, you understand it now. That's messed up. It's fallen. Remember the smell when you walked into your house and you smelled maybe a pie baking for Christmas or Thanksgiving? Do you remember the family and friends gathered there? You remember the, the buddy across the street that you played with? Remember those good times? Remember the, the animals you had? The dog that was your favorite dog? The cat? The lizard? The frog? Remember those things you played with? They were all your little world. And ever since you've been growing up, things have been taken away from you. And you keep living, and the more and more things get, keep taking and getting away from you. And you keep losing people. You know how that feels? He's saying, no more. I'm creating an environment where you don't lose anything. You get it back. Everything you lost is coming back to you. That is supposed to touch your heart 
when he says, I go to prepare a place specifically for you. And then when you walk in, you'll say, it's amazing. I get this all back. I told you guys, you would get it all back a hundredfold. I've had this special spot for you. Amazing. Amazing. The carpenter from Nazareth has designed a place for you. Of course it's a carpenter. What does a carpenter do? Remember, he built the universe. He has no problem making a specific place for you. He made the universe. Let's continue on. As a father gives away a bride, Jesus gives the new Jerusalem to us, and he's proud of the place. You have to understand, this is the gift to us. Just as a father gives away a bride, he gives it to us and says, this is yours now. Six, the bride is joined to her husband. The new heaven and the new earth are joined together. They actually come back to planet earth. And, and that's why heaven, sometimes people don't understand that, no, you actually come back to your experiences, but without sin, without evil. The beautiful sunsets that you like, you get those back. All the things about this earth that are good, you get tenfold, a hundredfold. It all comes back to you. And lastly, the marriage is designed to be permanent. The new Jerusalem will be our permanent eternal abode. It will never be taken away from you. Think about how much you've lost in this life. You've lost people. You've lost things. You've lost money. You've lost everything. And by the end of it, by the way, if we don't get raptured, we will die. And as Job said, we came naked into this world and we will leave this world naked. The only thing that makes it ahead of us is what you stored up, your treasure in heaven. And when you get there, your treasure will be there waiting for you exactly to everything you did. He said, if you give a cup of cold water to one of my servants, another believer in ministry, he says, I'll reward you. I'll reward you a prophet's reward. If you give a cup of cold water, it'll be there for you. That's where you store up treasure in heaven because you're not taking anything with you. You lose everything in this life. Let's go back to the text in Revelation, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, behold is in the Greek is to get your attention. The tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people as that's a result of God dwelling with them. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Now the idea in biblical history is this is the consummation of God actually living with his people. Notice that we don't go to where God is, God comes down to where we are. That's been the, the mode all through scripture, that God comes down to live with us. And if you recall, in the, in the Garden of Eden, what happened? Do you remember before the fall? God would come in the late afternoon, it's called the cool of the day, the beginning of the day. The, the day started in the night, at night, not, not like how we do. It starts at night. God would come at the beginning of the day, which would be sundown for us. And he would fellowship with Adam and Eve and walk in the cool of that day, of the evening time, with Adam and Eve. But where did he come? He came from heaven down to where Adam and Eve were. 
He came there to where they were at, to their habitation, to their environment. And then obviously the fall happened. The next time we see God is he starts tabernacling with Israel in the desert. He saves them from the exodus and then we have what's called the tabernacle. And then we know that his Shekinah glory goes into the Holy of Holies and he dwells with Israel. And he dwelt with Israel for a long, long time until he could take it no longer when they had all kinds of other gods and then he, his Shekinah glory left. But again, he tabernacled. Interesting thing, we're getting ready to celebrate Christmas, the idea of the incarnation, and it says this that in the Greek that Christ came and tabernacled with us. The incarnation is God tabernacling again with humanity. That's what Christmas is about. He's God leaving his environment to come to our environment to be with us. Obviously, Messiah went back, but he's coming again. But the ultimate goal is this, that God will live where we're at. And that fellowship of being with God is really what our hearts desire. We think it's money. We think it's pleasure. We think it's the things of this world. And we go on a hunt for him, not knowing we're looking for him. But really, he's our heart's desire is that we would be with God's presence. That's the ultimate. And as you can see, God is very relational with us. He actually wants to dwell with us. That's the goal, is that he actually tabernacles with his creatures and that he would come to our realm and live with us and how he created us in a physical paradise for us, a perfect world. It's tangible, it's physical, That is truly what satisfies us. It's not the things of this world. It's God himself. You know, we we just came from Israel a couple weeks ago. We went to the Western Wall, and it's the closest thing to where the tabernacle was. And you say, why do the Jews go to the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall? Because it's the closest thing for them to where God's presence once was, in the Holy of Holies, on the Temple Mount. And so they, they cling to the western wall as close as they can get to try to get close to where the Shekinah glory once was. And you can see the wear marks on all the rocks there. And people put prayers in there. And, and you can see the wear marks as people are kissing the rock and getting close to it. But why did they do that? Well, again, they don't understand Messiah's turn, uh, 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 sayings when he's told the woman at the well, the time will come when you will worship me in spirit and truth. You won't have to go to a location. But why do they do it? Because they know that's where the presence of God was at at one point in time. It's the idea of longing to be with him. And that's what our true desire is. We long to be in the presence of Jesus. Paul said it himself. I'd rather depart and go be with him. But if God keeps me here, I'll just keep working for, your, for the church's benefit. But I would rather go and be with Messiah. I would rather be in his presence because it's truly how we're made. The way we're created, this body-soul unit that we are, deep down inside, we long for our creator. We want to be with him. He's what satisfies our soul. But unfortunately, what Satan has done is created a counterfeit 
to thinking, no, you can be satisfied with money, you can be satisfied with a career, you can be satisfied with the things of this world. And so people start taking the substitutes and think it's real. Only Jesus satisfies. And one day he says, I promise I'll be with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you now in spirit, but one day I'll be with you in present, in, in, in present, with my presence, and you will see me in my glory. And pray tell, once we're in his presence, what will he do for us? Not only does he create an environment, he doesn't create an environment and leave us in that environment. He actually indwells the environment there, and then he does one more step that only God, the God of the Bible, could do. Read the rest of the text in verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Stop right there. What it's saying is he personally will come to you. And the way the Greek is constructed, take care of every tear you've ever shed in this life. Personally, he will do this to each of his believers. He will understand all the pain you went through. He will sympathize, but also empathize with you because he's our sympathetic high priest. He will bind up your wounds. Pay attention to the hurts and the pains that you went through in this life, the infirmities. You'll have a new body. Provide healing to all the emotional damage that's been done and all the spiritual damage that's been done to you. He understands. All of our regrets, all of our sadness, all of our pain, all of our disappointments, all of our misfortune is reconciled with him saying, let me talk to you. Let me answer all your questions. Let me show you what the plan was for your life and why it went this way. Let me show you that it was all redeemable. It wasn't wasted. I have your tears in a bottle, every one of them. All of what other people did to you, all of your failures, all of what Satan and the demonic realm did to you, I will deal with you one day and I will make it right. And so we see the dramatic negatives in this. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. What that is, is a reversal and removal of the curse of Genesis 3. It's gone now. No more will you have loved ones die. No more will you have loved ones get sick. No more will you lose things. No more will you feel any pain coming from Satan and the demonic or other people or the things you do to yourself. It's gone. You won't shed a tear anymore after this. It's gone. It's the new order. I'm getting rid of sin, evil, rebellion. It does not exist in this new realm. I give you a new glorified body which will never get old but will last for all eternity It's an ideal environment. I will meet all your needs. You'll have perfect peace and rest. And you'll only experience life, never death. Wow. This is why Psalm 16, 11 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You will experience those pleasures forevermore. And you say, how can this be possible? 
How can he do this for all of us? We've done so much against him. We've rebelled against him. How could he do something so glorious for us? The reason it's possible is because of the Messiah. The reason it's possible because Jesus suffered for us. He took all of our sin cumulatively for all humanity and paid for it so we could have this. He didn't have to do that. The majority of human beings reject him. They don't want this. They don't want to be with him. And yet he cares for our needs and says, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to pay for this so I can give you life so that you can be with me forever. I want you with me. If that's not the biggest affirmation of God's love for you, that he created this and he loves you so much that he did this for you, I don't know what is. We face so much rejection in this world, but yet God says, I don't reject you because you've come to faith in Messiah. I'll give you this. Wow. Go back to verse five. He says, then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. The idea of new is is the idea of how God created Eve out of Adam. He took a rib out of him and created something brand new. And it's the idea of I destroyed the former cosmos and I'm taking whatever's left of that in the energy of it and making a new one. Just like he made Eve. It's new in character. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. The idea is because God said it, it's going to make it, he's going to make it happen. This is why we're not hopeless. If God says something, it happens. And so he says, you can trust this. This is what awaits you. Verse six, he says, and he said to me, it is done. This is the consummation of all things. It's irreversible. And this is what all of human history has been gearing towards is this particular time. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The idea is that God God started it and he's going to end it because he is the creator. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, is he's the one who could do this. And notice he says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Notice the word freely. I wish every Calvinist would read this passage. It didn't say, I determined you to be saved. It says, I give it freely to anyone who wants this. Huh. The invitation is for any human being. I'll give this to you if you want it. But here's the deal. Notice it says, you th- who thirsts. I find a lot of people these days don't thirst for God. Have you noticed that? They don't want him. They busy themselves with their little lives, ignoring what God is doing in their life. They go about their business acting like he doesn't exist, acting like he he hasn't done this for them. Because you know why? You know the idea behind thirsts? It has to do with spiritual poverty. The person has to acknowledge their spiritual poverty in order to thirst for God. And yet the majority of people on planet earth that has ever lived don't thirst for him. They don't recognize they're in poverty spiritually, which means this. They think they're going to earn their way to this place. 
They think they can be good enough and that God should accept them into this place. And God demands 100% perfection. And only Messiah is perfect. That's the reason they don't come. And he says this in verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God. And he shall be my son. Now this is the idea of overcoming. This is a passive overcoming. That if you come to faith in Messiah, you automatically get this. This is a passive reward. Now, there's other passages in in book of Revelation, chapters 2 through 3, that talk about overcoming certain things, certain theological things, uh, or theological errors, or certain issues, morality-wise. But this text is having to do with overcoming in a passive way through faith in Christ. That if you overcome, so to speak, if you put faith in Messiah, as Jesus says, you will overcome the world. And you will overcome and, be, and receive all of these promises that he has given us. Interesting thing, there's a warning. There's a warning. In this beautiful text, there's a warning. And you can see it in verse 8. But the cowardly, the idea of cowardly is though they fear man rather than fear God. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. He says the cowardly, the unbelieving... The abominable, which means polluted, refers to those who uh, are polluted sinfully in their mind, spirit, and body. Murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, Gehenna, the lake of fire, which is the second death. The second death is to be separated from God in the lake of fire, and we talked about that. Why would it give a warning? Because God's trying to put the invitation out that, look, I have done all this for you. I've created this place for you, and and you will be my adopted child if you accept Messiah. He is the only way of your salvation. But if you don't, there is no neutral ground. I haven't created a limbo. I haven't created a purgatory like the Catholics teach. You will go to the lake of fire if you don't accept me. And God is being fair. I give it to anyone who thirsts. But if you don't thirst, this is what you can expect. Your destiny will be in the lake of fire. I have nowhere else to put you other than to quarantine you into fire and brimstone with the devil and his angels. Wow. Wow. And unfortunately, the world is racing to the lake of fire. Interesting thing, this last week I was hearing Carl Teichrib talk about, he went to, um, this is bizarre, the Parliament of World Religions meeting. Think about those names, right? The Parliament of World Religion, okay? And pray tell, what did they talk about at the Parliament of World Religion? Because Carl Teicher, if you don't follow him, he goes into these places and he goes to like witchcraft meetings and he goes to Burning Man meetings and he infiltrated this and to hear what they're talking about. Well, this was in Toronto and he wrote down everything they could possibly say. And this is why I see why God puts these warnings in scripture when he talks about salvation. You know what they talked about? And then we're talking about world leaders, we're talking about religious leaders, we're talking about politicians that went to this. About 7,000, I think, people went to this thing. 
It was basically a hate fest towards Christianity and the Jews. A hate fest to the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. A hate fest towards anything pro-Bible. In fact, the new word they use for people like you and I who believe in the Bible call us, you're part of the supremacy, religious supremacy. You're part of the national supremacy if you like America. And these false religious people, political, world religious type of people basically demonize any, anybody who was pro-Christianity, pro-Bible, pro pro-God, and then it went political, pro-Trump, pro-Kavanaugh. If you believe in the exclusivity of Christ, you're part of the problem. And you know what they said? If you're pro-capitalism, you're part of the problem. If you're pro-Christianity, you're part of the problem. If you're pro-Jew, you're part of the problem. Because if you're not a globalist, a one-world religious type of person who loves socialism and Marxism, then we've got to get rid of you. And we've got to figure out how to deal with you because you're part of the problem. You're getting in the way. I told my class this morning, one gal who was a, and I think if I can say it right, a female progressive Baptist Hindu. Something like that. Okay, I mean, you, you try to put all that together, right? She made an art rendering of the god Kali of the Hindu religion. Have you ever seen the renderings of Kali? It's a demonic-looking creature that has severed heads tied to their, her belt in the Hindu religion. It's a god of destruction and war. It's a de- it's demon or it's Satan himself, one of the two. And all these people at this conference were fawning over it, saying how wonderful this is because... This lady had made this image of Kali. Well, guess who was the severed heads on Kali? Take a guess. You know, Trump, Kavanaugh, all the conservatives in our country and around the world were on the severed heads of Kali. I tell you this because when you see a warning like this, this is the real deal, man. The rest of the world doesn't think like you and I. They are heading for Hades. And they are anti-Christianity, anti-Jew, anti-capitalism. Because, by the way, capitalism comes out of the free market system, which comes directly from the Bible, the free market system. They hate that. And they hate sovereignty, national sovereignty. And they like a one-world religion where everyone's tolerated except the Jews and Christians. Thank you very much. So I understand now, when you talk about heaven... You have to include the lake of fire. I get it. Because you can't offer that salvation, not tell them what the consequence is for not making the right decision. You can have all this beautiful environment, but yet if you don't, here's what waits you. God is fair. And I get that now. I understand why he does that. Amazing environment. And amazing. But he says, in this environment... I'm keeping out these types of people. Now, now notice in verse 8, if you go back to verse 8, it starts identifying the unbelievers by their sins that they practice. And there's a reason for that. Their sins, whether it was cowardly, sexual, immoral, sorcery, idolatry, liars, what happens is if you stay in unbelief, Jesus said, 
in the Gospels, you will die in your sin. Basically, their sin, their predominant sin of their life becomes their identity. Our identity is in Christ because we're a new creation. But if you remain in your old self, you will take on the identity of your sin, the predominant one that you did. And that's why they're named like that. The murderers, the idolaters, they're named for the predominant thing that pushed their life and was driving their life. They like to murder. They like to lie. They like to practice sorcery. And God says, fine, you can practice that, but I will quarantine you in the lake of fire. All this to say is, what's some application for us? There's a, there's a lot here. Anyone who wants this can get, anyone who wants this gets this. But you say, well, I've already made that decision for Christ. I've accepted him, and this is my future. Yes, but this is where your hope is. This is where it should be in understanding heaven. Like I said before last week, a focus in on heaven and the next life and what God has for us keeps us or prevents us from being worldly. It keeps us from, from false hope. So there's a lot of false hope in this world. And a lot of people, we, we become like the world and we start putting hope into things that we shouldn't be putting into. Like other people, like our finances, like our retirement, and things can evaporate just like that. What false hope does when you put it in things other than God and what he's created? You start having disappointment. You start having doubt, confusion, discouragement. You start crashing it causes you to feel helpless. Why? Well, I can't do anything. It causes you to give up. You actually start losing faith in God because you start doubting everything. You deny reality. You start getting stressed. You drift away from God. When you see people drift away, guys, it's because they're giving up hope. They're drifting because they have no hope because they put their hope in the wrong things. Causes them to become sick. A lot of people are sick because they hope in the wrong thing. They're hoping in a family member to change. Guys, I can tell you this. You can keep hoping for that family member to change, but I guarantee you they won't come back sometimes. That's between them and God. It's not gonna, it's not, you're not going to be able to affect anything. We pray for them. We hope they do. But if you say, no, I'm holding out hope that someday they're going to wake up and say, man, I was wrong. I repent. I'm sorry for what I did. Man, that's really rare. That's really rare. You don't put hope in people. You put hope in God. That's where your hope goes. If you put hope in people, they will disappoint you every time. We were talking when we were on Israel, and... Uh, we are very pro-Israel, we're very pro-Jewish, as you know. But man, I can see the attitude of what's going to get them in trouble. What do you mean? When you're in Israel and you see it on the ground, you get it because they're, they're surrounded by hostiles. I mean, people, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, you name it, every terrorist organization on this planet is surrounded them, firing rockets in them, wanting to kill them and wipe them out, Okay. There's not going to be a peace plan until the Antichrist eventually comes with a deal. He will be the man with a plan. 
I just remember where we're standing in the city of David, and it's on it's in the lower outcrop from the Temple Mount, and this is where David's palace was, and it's right there. And the the the, the tour guide was was talking to us and saying, you know. Uh, He's talking about giving, you know, we try to have peace with these people and try to do this and we try to do that. And I remember someone in our group goes, don't give them an inch. And she just, she just kind of looked back. And, you know, she's messianic, but she didn't understand as Americans what we're trying to say to her. And I, she was take, a little taken aback. She didn't know how to respond. But I knew what he was talking about because here's what happens. Israel sometimes, to their detriment, puts hope in the wrong people. And this has burnt them ad infinitum through the Old Testament. They would cut deals with Egypt. They would cut deals with this country. They would cut deals with that country. And God would send a prophet to Israel saying, don't do that. Just trust me. Quit making deals with people. And... It's plagued them. And I, as I, I'm sitting there, right there in Jerusalem, singing, seeing that same mentality. And this is the mentality, guys. They put hope in people and try to cut deals with them. And they always end up getting burned. They try to do deals with Yasser Arafat. He just burned them. He would say one thing in English here, and then he would go back to the PLO and speak in Arabic and saying, we're going to wipe out the Jews. And the media never picked that up. And then they gave up part of the Gaza several years ago. And I'm thinking, you know, they gave up part of the Gaza, and then they, they said, okay, we want to give that, that land to you for peace. We just want peace. Just leave us alone. And what happens now? Rockets come firing out of Gaza. The very place they gave up. They're getting rockets fired on them. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my Lanta, you're going to put your hope in a man with a plan one day. He will be Satan's son, and he will finally cut a deal with you, and you will think you finally have achieved peace. And then what? God is going to show you, and, and I, I just, I feel so bad about this, but I know what prophecy says. That man that they put hope in, the, the false Messiah, which they should have put in the true Messiah, they will put their false hope in the false Messiah, and he will burn them. I mean, like, like Nazism never did, like Hitler never did. You will have a second holocaust at a greater level than what Hitler ever could accomplish through the Antichrist. And it's at that point that Israel finally says, hey, we need to put faith in Jesus Christ rather than these other people. I know that sounds almost elementary, but it comes down to those basic principles If you put hope in the wrong people, they will burn you. And God will let you do that. God will let you put hope in an adult child who can't get their act straight. God will let you put hope in parents who can't get their act straight. God will let you put hope in friends or relatives or siblings or whatever that can't get their act straight. And you will just keep hoping and hoping and praying and praying and nothing ever changes. In fact, it gets worse. 
And they divide your family, don't they? They divide it up, don't they? I mean, we're supposed to look to Israel for an example. Don't put your hope in the wrong thing because you'll get divided and, and, and slaughtered. And that's what starts happening to people. So all of this talk about heaven is for us to put our hope in the right thing, the right person, the right environment. And that causes us to be continually motivated. It inspires us. We feel relief. The stress will melt away because, again, we're focusing on the right thing. It lifts us up. It increases our faith when we we trust in God. And God never disappoints. And this whole idea of, of, of hope, you can see it in little bits and pieces, even in, in modern-day little stories like this. There was a, a burn center in Chicago, and the burn center had a lot of kids that had been burned. And what this hospital did is work with the school systems in the local area to send teachers into the hospitals to help these little kids that had been burned. And they had to stay, obviously, in these burn units for a long, long time, but to help them with their schooling. And so they had worked the deal out with the local district, and so they would send these teachers in and help these kids in their academics. Well, this one kid, this young kid, he was probably about eight or nine years old. He had been burned severely. And the poor little boy, he was just fried, man. He had been in a car accident, and it had burned him terribly. They honestly didn't think he was going to make it. He'd been burned so bad. So anyway, the kid had started giving up hope that he was going to live. So anyway, unbeknownst to this teacher, the hospital calls her in and says, hey, we have this little boy. We'd like you to visit with him, and he's in grade whatever, third or second or whatever it was, and he needs to learn about his vowels. So you go in there and teach him about vowels. And again, no one even thought twice about it, but this little boy was giving up hope. He was ready to pack it in, man, because he was hurting so bad. Well, anyway, this teacher goes in there, and she just nonchalantly says, hey, little Billy, I'm here to to teach you about vowels today. So if you can sit up in bed a little bit, we're going to go through our vowels today. And they went through them. And the teacher left, and she, she didn't think anything of it, and says, well, I don't know if whatever came out of that. He wasn't real responsive, and he wasn't really engaged in this, so I don't know. So anyway, the next day, the hospital calls and says to this teacher, hey, what did you do to that little boy? What did you do? She goes, what? I just, we just went over a lesson in vowels. That's all. They go, yeah, but all of a sudden, he's got new life. All of a sudden, he's got new will to live. And we thought we were going to lose him. But all of a sudden, he's got this, this desire to, to heal up and, and move on from this. What did you do? She goes, I don't know. I just went over his vowels. That's all I did. She was flabbergasted. She didn't know what happened. So anyway, the teacher finally went back and visited little Billy there in the burn unit. And she says, hey, the, the nurses and everybody, the doctors say, everything has changed for you. What's happened? Yesterday, you were really depressed. You weren't responsive. And, and now, all of a sudden, you're awake and alert and excited. What happened? And he said this real simply. I figured that they would not send a teacher to teach a boy about vows if the boy was dying. So I, I, I figured that you came in here and were teaching me about vows 
that was my hope that I was going to live. And she could not believe that, how that little boy interpreted that. But that's what he said. No one would teach vows to a dying boy. Wow. Now bridge that to God. What are you learning about right now? What is God teaching you right now? What is he taking you through in this life? What are you learning about yourself and about reality and about him? All that stuff that you're learning and you're gaining knowledge is for the next life. That's where our hope is. I know we're, 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 some of us are in a burn unit. I get it. You've been burned a lot of times, and you're, really, you're, you're ready to, to give up hope. But what God's saying is, we got to learn vows today. Come on, get up. we got to learn vows. Well, why? I've given up all hope. I've been burned too many times. I've given up. No, no, no. I have another life for you, and i got to get you prepared for that next life. So let's get up and learn your vows today. That's what God is doing with you. He is making you learn your vowels, then your consonants, and then you're going to learn cursive, and then you're going to move on, and you're going to learn all the construction, so to speak, spiritually, because why? I've got great plans for you, and I want to use you at a greater level in the Messianic kingdom and for all eternity. So let's get up, let's get motivated, and out of that hospital bed and out of that burn unit, because I need you to cooperate with me. That's what he's doing with us. That's why he gives us a glimpse of our future. He says, it's all ready for you, but I got to get you up. I got to get you going. You're not, to get you from a, a, point A to point B, we got a lot of work to do. That's where your hope comes in. All is not lost. Keep working. Keep striving. Keep persevering through all that he's giving you because the best is yet to come. I'll leave you with this. I've been talking to one of our church members who doesn't have long for this life. And I talked to her about her funeral arrangements. Very, very interesting thing. I've never, I've never really had to talk to somebody about their own funeral arrangements. So we're going through it. And she says, hey, Brandon, do me a favor. I want to be buried with a spoon and in my hand. I said, okay. You want a spoon in your hand? I said, okay. I go, why? Because she said this to me. She said, when we were little, my mom would always tell me, now, save your spoon because dessert's coming. And I said, I get it. I said, we will make sure that you have a spoon in your hand. Because she says, Brandon, she would always say, the best is yet to come. I said, amen. The best is yet to come. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.